Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, March 26, 2010. This week, episode 161 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. I like working with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. We also have the intrepid environmental Annie Koalecki at the controls. Good afternoon, guys. Good day, Annie. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Dr. Marilyn S. Black from Air Quality Sciences in today for the interview. Halftime, we'll go with uh, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. We'll go back to our interview, and then we'll do the roundup as usual. Check out uh, Cliff's blog on the IAQ Radio website after every show at www.iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Thor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, j-o-n-d-o-n.com. And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. To contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. And, of course, you can text us in, as most listeners do. You can also download previous shows from our iaqradio.com website or get our show from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have those ABIH, Certification Maintenance Points, IICRC, Continuing Education Credits, or ACAC Renewal credits, just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Our emails are also listed on the iaqradio.com website. Cliff and I are more than happy to answer questions and uh, take suggestions from listeners. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Well, I'm sorry to report there were no correct answers to last week's trivia question. It's a tough one. Yep. I was actually, yeah, it was. Win, <laughs> win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Now for the microband trivia questions for Friday, March 26th, 2010. The subject matter for this week's trivia questions is smart women. Uh, we actually have two trivia questions. You can answer one or both, and we'll have a prize for each. The first question is, 
Name the actress, mathematician, author, and education advocate. She is best known for her role as Winnie Cooper in the television show The Wonder Years, and now is the author of two New York Times best-selling books, Math Doesn't Suck and Kiss My Math, which encourage middle school girls to learn math. Second trivia question. Name the actress who received the U.S. patent for a frequency-hopping device designed to guide radio-controlled torpedoes while making them more difficult to detect in the water. Back to you, Joe. Thanks, Cliff. Today's guest is Dr. Marilyn Black, founder and CEO of Air Quality Sciences. Air Quality Sciences is a global expert on indoor air pollution and pollutant sources. With more than 25 years of experience, Dr. Black has directed numerous research studies on indoor air pollution and its effects on human health, mold growth in buildings, and the impact of furnishings, construction materials, and electronic equipment on indoor pollutant levels. Her degree is a PhD in chemistry from Georgia Tech down south, and she had uh, undergraduate degrees from Virginia, and I can't remember where the master's degree was from, but that's okay. We've got all in chemistry, by the way, as well. And we've got some great intro music today for Dr. Black. I look inside myself and see my heart is black. I see my red door, I must have it into black. Fade away and I have to face the facts It's not easy facing up when your whole world is black No more will my green seagull turn a deeper blue I could not foresee this thing happening to you Good, good day, Dr. Black. Do we have you on the line? I am here. Oh, Thank you. Good. I hope you're a Stones fan. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you've ever been introduced with that song or not, but we really appreciate having you on. And uh, we wanted, we've really been looking forward to this interview. Cliff is a big, big chemistry kind of guy and enjoys these types of things, and we've had some great guests in the past. But we've never had you on, and I'd like to learn a little bit about your company first. What year did you start Air Quality Sciences? Air Quality Sciences started in 1989, so we just uh, experienced our 20th anniversary. Oh, great. And what did you do prior to starting uh, the current a AQS? Well, prior to AQS, I was on the faculty at Georgia Tech, uh, primarily running an indoor air quality research program. So. Uh, AQS was somewhat of an um, offshoot of my activities related to understanding sick buildings and the sources of pollutants and how to uh, help manufacturers design and manufacture safe products for the indoor environment. That's interesting. How uh, did, did you just kind of grow into that, or was it something you had always been interested in? Well, uh, my whole career from the, from the very beginning uh, has been related to pollutant exposures and their impact on human health. And so prior to coming to Atlanta, I um, was in Boston, and most of my work there was really related to outdoor air pollution, the impact of sulfur oxides and um, nitrogen oxides particles on uh, human health, respiratory disease. So when I came to Atlanta uh, and went to Georgia Tech, I was interested in pursuing the continuing study of the impact of uh, pollutants on, on, on people's health. And at that time, um, the indoor air quality issue was just beginning. We were um, starting to see people in buildings that were concerned that the building or the air in the building could be impacting their health. And so I found that that was a good research area to to initiate, and there was a fair amount of funding available, and um, the tools and the process for studying these issues were very similar to what I had used in outdoor air chemistry, so it was a good um, good analogy and um, uh, a new topic, and I was able to kind of get in on the ground floor and help develop 
a lot of the basic understanding of what we know today and, and development of a lot of the tools that we use for um, evaluating indoor air quality. Interesting. Cliff? Yeah, doctor, uh, what chemicals and VOCs are commonly emitted by new building materials such as carpeting, vinyl composition flooring, wooden cabinets, OSB, and plywood? Well, um, I guess the, um, you know, kind of the, uh, the large part of this particular question is kind of understanding that products in general, the everyday building materials and furnishings that we use in buildings are the source of many of the VOCs that are there. And just about any product that's in that indoor environment, whether it's flooring or walls or ceiling systems, uh, can contribute these VOCs into the air. And um, at this point in, I think, our business at AQS, we've tested about 65,000 different products. And uh, at the end of 2009, we identified the 10,000th product, uh, 10,000th VOC coming off of products. So we've seen a lot of VOCs associated with products. However, there are some some standard um, chemicals, standard VOCs that are very commonly present. If you measure the air and you measure products, you will often see um, a series of chemicals, basic hydrocarbons like decane, undecane, um, aromatics like toluene, methyl benzenes that are very prevalently associated with many products. However, when you get down into studying specific product categories like a carpet, uh, like a, um, um, a piece of particle board, you will find certain types of chemicals associated with them. So if you're dealing with carpet, um, the carpet industry has done a lot through the years to reduce the chemical emissions and uh, have very minimal uh, emissions at the current, with, with the currently manufactured products. But they're probably the most common VOC associated with carpet uh, is a chemical called 4-phenylcyclohexene, 4-PC, 4-PCH, as you will commonly see it represented in the marketplace. That particular chemical is the one that gives carpet its characteristic new carpet odor. And um, it is present on carpets that have a um, butadiene styrene backing or adhesive. And the 4PC is a byproduct of that adhesive manufacturing. Um, and it's the most prevalent chemical VOC associated with carpet. Um, the, the um, one amazing aspect of, of that particular chemical, though, is that it's in the air at parts per trillion level when we're measure, when we're smelling it or even measuring it from new carpet. So, even though it's there at extremely low levels, we can measure, we can observe it because it has such a uh, low odor threshold. The particular chemical VOC itself has been studied for potential health effects and. Um, it's been shown that it doesn't have any significant health effects, but it is an odorant and it is observable. When you move to other types of products um, like uh, uh, vinyl flooring products, kind of the, the chemical profile will change. Those particular products have a lot of heavy hydrocarbons associated with them, um, a lot of uh, C10 through C18 hydrocarbons, um, both alkanes and saturated alkenes and things like that that kind of give it a characteristic um, odor. Currently, we don't see many chlorinated type of chemicals associated with those products because those formulations have, have changed over time. So the chemicals that we used to see a number of years back, like um, uh, potentially trichloroethane or tetrachloroethane and those type of things are gone. And then when you move to wood products, you see a totally different type of chemical mixture. You may see, if you if you test a piece of particle board, you may see a lot of alcohols, ketones, chemicals called um, uh, carboxylic acids, um, and those type of things that give it their characteristic odor. Okay. So every every class of compound, every class of products can be a little bit different in terms of their what we call their chemical DNA. 
That was a great answer, and I think our listeners really appreciate it. As a follow-up to that, um, is there is a reduction of these building material emissions predictable? Uh, yes. I mean, we've been studying products for quite a number of years from the academic and, and practical side. And um, the reduction of chemicals, yes, are pretty predictable. We've established um, what we call decay rate patterns for types of products that show how those chemicals uh, generally decay and go away over time. And there may be some chemicals that flash off very quickly and may dissipate from a product within hours. There may be others where it may take uh, longer periods of time for those chemicals to um, outgas or be released. And something like formaldehyde in a pressed wood product um, could take up to years for it to, um, to go away. Whereas a hydrocarbon in an adhesive may cure and flash off within four hours. Now, how do you... Um, maybe Can I answer your question? It, it does. Very well, thank it, you. It does, and um, we'll have another follow-up. But before we go there, I want to make sure that our listeners and myself, that I understand and they understand, how do you perform this testing? I understand you have some type of environmental testing chambers that you use. I don't know how common they are in, you know, for other companies to have or universities to have? Are you one of the few people doing this, and, and how do you go about doing this type of testing? Right. Well, um, the standard technique for measuring emissions from products is called environmental chamber technology, and this technology has been around for quite a while, originally uh, developed, conceived by um, the EPA back in the um, uh, late 70s to mid-1980s, and that was an area that I was researching when I was at Georgia Tech, helping develop this technology. But these environmental chambers are now a global standard in terms of measuring emissions from products. We now have ISO standards that address how these measurements are made. And so there are laboratories and research institutes uh, all across the world that have chambers that perform this type of testing. Our facility is somewhat unique because we were early pioneers in this, so we've done a lot of research and development on the design. We actually manufacture chambers and work on the design for implementation and things like that as well. But in our laboratory, which is one of the largest in the world, we have over 60 different environmental chambers, ranging from large room-sized chambers the size of a bedroom down to small chambers, which might be the size of a bread box, and we use all those for studying products. And these chambers are unique because they're um, they're they're stainless steel. They're manufactured out of stainless steel, so that they and they have non-reactive surfaces. So when we we place these products in these chambers and we seal the product up in there, we actually supply air to the chamber. So air is moving dynamically through the chamber at the same rate that it would in a room, and we have the temperature and the humidity controlled, but the difference between a real room versus the chamber is that the air is very pure in that chamber. The air that's fed into that chamber is stripped of all chemicals, particles, or anything that, that could add contaminants to the air. So the air is very pure, so when a product is closed up in that chamber, uh, it, it experiences an environment similar to it to an environment that it would when it's in an actual building or a home. It's just that the air is very clean, so anything that outgasses from that product ends up in the air. And then we take air samples from the chamber for VOCs or formaldehyde or particles or ozone or whatever we're testing, and then we do analytical measurements on that air. And then once we get the analytical data for the contaminants or pollutants that we're measuring, then we have various exposure models that we use. And we'll, you know, say we're testing a paint and we get the emission information from the chamber. What chemicals did we measure? What levels are they present at? And then we put that information into an exposure model and we say, we're going to use this paint in this building and we're going to have it covering this many square feet of walls. And then that exposure model will tell us what sort of, what level of chemical 
are chemicals the people in that building will be exposed to over time, from the time it's immediately applied to 30 days later or at what point in time we want to know. And that's kind of um, the importance of this technique is this, this allows us to understand what the contribution of all these materials will be so that one can determine essentially when it might be safe for building for people to either occupy a building after renovation or construction or is it okay for them to be there during um, renovation when these products are being applied. So it's a very powerful um, technology. A lot of our listeners are indoor air quality investigators, and one of the toughest things they do is go out and investigate odor complaints. And I'm wondering if you can give our listeners some tips on how they can maybe narrow down, you know, because obviously we could test for, you know, 10,000 VOCs here, and that would get a little pricey, I would assume. So how can they narrow down what types of uh, testing they may eventually do, or can you give them some tips on maybe even how to find these odors without having to go to the level of doing some type of uh, analytical testing? Yeah. Well, tracking odors in buildings is probably one of the most um, complex issues to deal with, uh, primarily because usually if there's an odor, Number one, there is a source for the odor somewhere. However, it may be transient, meaning that it may come and go, and that may that that may be dependent on the environmental conditions for the day, the temperature, the humidity. It may be dependent on the airflow, and also how the source of the odor is is occurring. Is it something that you know uh, comes happens every now and then, based on some sort of process? or, you know, whatever. So it's, it, it's very difficult to track. And one of the things that a um, um, number of tools are available for trying to resolve, resolve these programs, first of all, you've got to have someone available who has a good nose. They've got to be able to observe the odor. And uh, finding that person sometimes can be difficult because people have very different sensitivities from 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 the odor perception standpoint. Some people have, you know, very low odor detectability. Others uh, have very high detectability. So uh, you have to have someone who can, who can observe the odor. And if you can find that person who can observe the odor and has had some experience observing odors, very frequently you can identify the source based on the, the odor perception. And so, you know, in our, in, in our organization, a number of our consultants are pretty experienced in that because we've done, tested so many products and we've observed odors from products and we've connected those odors to certain types of chemicals. So, you know, having some experience in connecting all of that together, um, you know, if you can find the right person that can do that, sometimes you can identify the odor uh, without having to do any testing. Um, if you can't if you can't do that, the next uh, the next approach is to collect a sample of the air while the odor is present, and you got to make sure the odor is present when you're collecting it, and that you know it is there at that specific time, especially if it's a transient thing that comes and goes. So, if you collect an air sample and you haven't analyzed by a good indoor air quality laboratory that can detect VOCs down to the parts per trillion levels, and that can do a full analysis of every chemical that's there. Traditionally, our experience is that you will see that chemical that's deodorant. Um, it may be there at very low levels, you know, low uh, nanogram per cubic meter or part per trillion level, but it, but, but it will be there. Um, the tip, one, one of the more common mistakes we see investigators make is to do a VOC analysis, but then they'll send it to a laboratory that, that, that uses a target list for reporting. And so if you send them a VOC analysis, they may do a TO1 list or some sort of target list and then send back the results. And you'll find all, you know, maybe all non-detects. Well, that doesn't work for odorants because 
you're looking for chemical, you don't know what you're looking for, so you need to get an ana analysis or a laboratory that's willing to identify every chemical peak that comes out of that air sample. And uh, chances, chances are you will find it. Um, there are some uh, odorant databases out there that uh, can be used to compare what you find to odor thresholds of chemicals as well as the odor perceptions. And so if you use those available databases to match up what you have found in the air, it also can help lead you to finding the, the source of the odor. But um, it, it is a complicated process. And I, I recall in, in preparing for the interview, and I, I can't remember what document it was, that you had a document, um, and it may have to do with these odorant databases, that kind of categorized the types of odors into maybe four or five basic categories of odors, and then it gave you some tips as to where to look or, or what type of odor it would be. I think one was, for instance, uh, for things that were living that were decomposing, et cetera. Can you run by those for our listeners? Uh, yeah, we probably did a technical brief at one time that listed some of the common uh, odorant issues that, that we observe in buildings. And um, uh, one of those may be... Um, um, ammonia amine type of odor and we often hear that from building occupants explained as a you know something decaying or a dead animal um, that type of thing and traditionally that is a signal of a nitrogen containing chemical and um, common source of that can be something biological or some sort of amine resin in a particular product that might get wet and, and, and release odors like that. Um, another one that we commonly encounter is um, a sulfur-type odor. And um, sulfur is a very distinctive in, in their particular odor. And when you observe that, then you know that, well, it could... Sulfurs traditionally um, um, come from sewer leaks, sewer line leaks, um, or dry traps in buildings, in, 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 in drains, which allow... Um, um, bacterial um, material to accumulate and then give off um, um, sulfur. organic sulfurs that result in that odor. Um, that was one I'm sure we, we pointed out. Um, you know, I have it here just to maybe help. I, I know I pulled, you got, you got pulled that out of nowhere. Of it's the, the tech brief on um, bad odors or a warning sign of IAQ troubles. And maybe we can post that for the listeners um, if it's okay with you after the show. Okay, that would be fine. There's, um, I, let me run down real quick the, the basic categories you had here. One was um, bleach, pungent, the smells associated with thunderstorms, and then the related VOC was ozone. We could talk more about that. Then there was musty, rotten fowl, sulfur compounds were the related VOC, and then dead fish, putrid, and that was the amines. And it goes down the list here, so very... Uh, I think that would be very helpful for people down the road. And I, I'm just curious what, um, you know, if they go and, uh, well, two questions came up while you were talking about this. One was, if I can't smell the odor and I can't hang around 24 hours a day until the, you know, it's a, a recurring odor comes back from time to time, could I very easily train the person who is having the problem smelling the odor to take the sample while I'm gone? Uh, yes, you could certainly do that. We've um, we've we've recommended that one take that approach many times. Uh, col collecting an air sample, you know, just requires a tube and a, and a calibrated pump and and someone to you know connect it right and turn turn the pump on. So that can be done. There are also some good passive VOC monitors that one can put in facilities now, where you can actually put a passive monitor in and leave it in for uh, seven-day period, or I think you can go up to 14 days with it if, if need be so that you can try to collect all the, the VOCs during that period of time and collect those periods of time when the building's not occupied, when the odor might be there. So that's another simple approach. Okay. Cliff? Yeah, the, uh, just uh, on, on the sampling, um, what about evacuated cylinder? You know, um, 
What's your opinion on that? Like canister cans. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, well, the can. Uh, yeah, uh, the canister. The canisters work well for many VOCs. Our experience is that they do not work very well for most of the odorant type of chemicals. Uh, primarily because the um, surfaces of those cans uh, have a tendency to have deposition of uh, water droplets. And then most of the types of odorant chemicals that we deal with are very much water-loving type chemicals. So if there's any water, they'll absorb, they'll, they will be absorbed in the water. And then once that happens, you'll never, uh, you'll never be able to get them out and see them. Thank you. So, our, our, that's been our experience so far. We've got a quick um, text question from a listener, and then we'll go to our halftime if uh, that works for you. It's um, how does relative humidity in the environment impact the sampling parameter? So for one example they gave us was trifabreeze at 35%, 50%, and 70% relative humidity with odor panels. How would that, I guess, uh, affect the sampling? How would the environmental conditions affect the dynamics of the sampling? Yeah, it's kind of, it's, how does relative the relative humidity, humidity in the environment impact the sampling parameter? Yeah, well, if you if you use the right sampling media, it should be a hydrophobic, meaning it should not be affected by water. Um, so if you use one of the high-quality 10X tubes primarily that's available now for VSC sampling, um, and, you know, follow the appropriate instructions for the appropriate length of time, you should not have a problem with water. Okay. Um, relative humidity, it shouldn't matter. Now, if it's raining <laughs> and you get water droplets in the tube, that could be a different issue. But <laughs> in general, relative humidity would not, would not make an impact. All right. We're going to uh, take a break here, thank our sponsors, and bring our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on for any comments he has on the first half, and then we'll bring you right back. Okay. Thank you. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research, Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor, software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Hello, Dr. D Dr. Dieter. How are you today? I'm just fine, and I just listened to the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony uh, half an hour ago. Uh, an hour ago. It takes at least 70 minutes to get to that one. Anyway, uh, there were a couple of uh, uh, excellent uh, remarks, and, and, and I have two basic questions. I have taken samples on charcoal tubes, on silica tubes, on special tubes, and you name it. And I ran them through the analysis, and a couple of hundred dollars later, I got a uh, printout with 50 different chemicals down at yeah, GC mass spec, gas chromatography with a mass spectrometer behind it. And I get 50 compounds over there, down to the parts per trillion. 
And I look at them, and, you know, I look, of course, for the, the, the usual suspects, like, you know, the toluenes and the xylenes and alkanes and all of that. But if there is a compound in a part per trillion, I mean, that can be my body odor or my aftershave lotion, and I don't know what to do with it. And a lot of people call me and I say, hey, I sat you over this and this and this. Can you interpret that for me? And I think, so I, I have problems with that when we talk about parts per trillion. The next thing is, and I like this, the nose is a very, very good instrument that we have. And of course, it's the only instrument available in the whole industry uh, to measure uh, odors. You can't measure it any other way. And <clears throat> I was going to ask Dr. Black, uh, my nose is pretty good, particularly after I gave up smoking <clears throat> many years ago. Uh, there are other animals, like dogs, uh, like mice. Uh, they have a very, very keen sense of smelling. And I know when I was at the University of Pittsburgh, we worked with the, uh, the United States Carpet Institute, who had problems, they had problems with new carpets, and um, we used mice to detect the odor, and the mouse um, has a reduction in breathing rate if it, it, if it is exposed to something like that. So we could measure that. that that's what, I mean, in other words, we use somebody else's nose and somebody else's brain uh, to do that. So that is the one big problem that I have uh, when I get all these uh, numbers, and uh, particularly about chemicals I never, ever heard of. And the other thing that I really like on the printout from a GC mass spec, mass spectrometer, is the last column, usually the last column, the operator says, I'm 90% sure, I'm 95% sure that this is the compound, I'm 91% sure that this is the comp compound, and I don't know whether it was in their library or not. But I think those are a couple of problems with, with, with which I have problems, and I'm doing indoor air stuff what, for 40 years or something like that. And I'm, I'm sometimes frustrated with too many data which don't tell me too much, and I better shut up. All right. Well, thank you, Dieter. We appreciate your comments, and let's get Dr. Black on the line and see if she has any uh, suggestions for you. Hello, Dr. Black. We have you back? Yeah, I'm back. Did yes. you uh, get to hear what uh, Dr. Wall had to say, and do you have any comments or suggestions for him? Uh, I, I did uh, hear what he had to say, and um, certainly if you obtain a GC mass spec scan of all these chemicals and you end up with with their names and their levels down at these low parts per billion levels, yes, the task at that point is, you know, understanding what all of that means. And that's the importance of um, working with what I call indoor air quality databases where you are able to match up those chemicals with uh, their particular odor characteristics, uh, both qualitative in terms of how they smell, what they smell like, uh, versus um, their in um, their odor thresholds. And the only way to, you know, uh, indoor air quality experts can can build those databases over time. And I think that's that's one of the areas we um, at AQS we we really specialize in that because we have understand the significance of these other issues, and we deal with a lot of IHs who are trying to understand that data. So when they do the analysis here, and if they're searching for an odor, we will run that full uh, scan, all of those chemicals that we've identified through these other databases, so that we can tell them that, you know, you've got uh, valeric or butanoic acid. Those are the chemicals that smell like... Um, uh, people re refer yes, to them as being putrid or sour or like baby vomit, basically. And but they're they're there. We're going to detect them at parts per trillion levels in those air samples. But they can produce those types of odors, and so we're able to point those things out to them and give them that information. And then for and then the next step is to identify what products those might be associated with. 
and um, so there are um, you know ways to put all of that information together and, and, and help the IHS. Now, is there a good database that they can go out now and independently find to help them do that do that job well? And I would say probably not. You know, they're out there, but you'd have to go find them and 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 aggregate them in order to to make them effective uh, for their for their personal use. I see. And any comments on the use of uh, animals to assist in finding these odor problems, or, or in his case, I guess, uh, identifying what types of chemicals were causing the uh, respiratory system to change? Um, yes, and I and I and I think, um, um, and I'm not uh, an expert on this, but I think he's probably referring to what has been used in the past. Uh, sensory irritation testing, where uh, certain mice have been used to um, evaluate chemicals and to help determine potential threshold levels, and having the chemical, ha- having the the mice smell the chemicals and react in some way affects their respiratory uh, system and the rate and and type of breathing patterns, and you know. But I don't think that that particular technique uh, has been shown to be valuable in terms of understanding the impact of product emissions and um, in, in predicting how those products are going to perform and, and, and being able to relate that to human responses to those products. I know that there was some work done back in the uh, early days of the carpet uh, industry issue, and EPA did a lot of testing with that technology and wasn't able to show um, direct correlation between actual human effects and, and the animal effects. So that's the, that's the limit of my knowledge, but I know that uh, it hasn't been used much since then. Okay. You did a great segue for me into uh, into discussing some of the building products here, and, and the first thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is the um, U.S. Green Buildings Council's uh, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design LEAD program and the VOC sampling. Um, can you comment on how the USGBC VOC sampling should be done? And I, I purposely, by the way, I want to warn you, we have the acronym police here, so that's why I... I, I, you know, gave the whole title first before I used the acronyms. Okay. Well, uh, yes, and most of the um, what I call kind of the green building, green rating system programs that are out there for buildings, part of those, um, one element of those programs is uh, indoor air quality, and they strive to make sure that they uh, achieve good indoor air quality. And LEED does have one particular credit that does allow clearance testing of the air in a newly constructed building. And I believe that clearance testing is covers um, um, PVOC, 4-phenylcyclohexene if carpet is used, formaldehyde, particles, and potentially some of the um, inorganic gases, carbon monoxide, et cetera. Um, the general testing that's being um, used to do that monitoring, I think it's pretty well established in terms of uh, volatile organic analysis on um, sorbent tubes followed by uh, gas chromatography or gas chromatographic uh, mass spectrometry techniques. Is that is that what you're asking? And um, and and formaldehyde by uh, DNPH cartridge collection followed by H high-performance liquid chromatography analysis, um, particles um, being tested with uh, real-time uh, gravimetric particle measurement devices, and uh, carbon monoxide and those other chemicals being used also with real-time instruments. So I, I am actually, I don't, I don't believe that the lead reference documents give much guidance in terms of the actual technologies that should be used. They refer, I believe, to some of the EPA um, criteria documents that list the methodologies. Yeah, that, the, that's exactly yeah, what I was looking for, yeah. Yes. And, and um, 
now with respect to these these products in buildings i know you you do a lot of um of this type of testing i'm, I'm curious have you seen really significant gains or strides being made in developing new products that are having fewer emissions? Uh, yes, I'm so glad you asked that because that's one of our main missions is to, you know, try to really work with manufacturers to help them achieve lower emitting, uh, less toxic products in the marketplace. And that's one of the main ways that we can really improve the indoor air quality. And since we've been working with manufacturers, um, uh, you know, over the past 20 years, we've seen um, a lot of strides in that particular area. You know, I can point out some products like some of the office furniture materials, um, workstations, and private office systems where, you know, we can demonstrate over the past 10 to 15 years those manufacturers have reduced their formaldehyde emissions by about 75 to 80 percent. So, and that same storyline goes with other sorts of products. We've seen the paints and coating industry reduce, uh, pretty much change their formulations where they're removing the more traditional organic solvents from their formulations and replacing those more with waterborne type of solvents um, that are uh, less hazardous. So I think overall we have seen significant improvements in the products in terms of emissions and their toxicity overall. And I think a lot of that has been um, the need for that and, you know, has been has been driven by um, some of these green building programs that are uh, requiring good indoor air quality as part of their um, uh, end result. Dr. Buck, we have a text question from a listener and the question is, what is the effect of time from the time a sample is collected until the laboratory, uh, laboratory produces a report? And what they're asking is, is there a degradation in the composition of the sample? Uh, an air sample? Um, is that a question for an air sample? I, 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 suspect, I suspect an okay. air sample, yeah. Yeah, um, actually not. Uh, storage is very good on... On the primary sorbent tubes, again, Tenax is kind of the primary sorbent that's used for um, air collections. And um, store if once those samples are collected and if they're kept cold in in our laboratory, they come back and they're frozen until until they're until they go into the mass spec lab for analysis. But um, we've done storage studies up to three months for the primary types of chemicals that that we're frequently analyzing and um, if, if the tube is, is kept cold and stored properly then there's there's very little um, storage issue or loss of chemicals. Okay. We haven't talked a great deal about indoor air quality certification programs and I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts about you know when it comes to these IAQ certification programs what what exactly does it mean for a product to be certified? Well, the, um, the main program that we're associated with, and it's the Green Guard Environmental Program, which uh, Air Quality Sciences actually helped establish in 2001, um, was primarily done because there, the, there, there was a need in the marketplace to have a program um, that could establish acceptable emission standards for products and have a third-party verification program that could qualify products and verify that they meet the standards and also to make sure that once manufacturers are certified that they continue to manufacture and put those same um, low emitting products in, in the marketplace. Um, so through, through, through the years of our experience in working with products, we found that the marketplace through the LEAD programs, Green Globes, Green Guide for Healthcare, and all of these green programs out there were asking for uh, the use of low-emitting products. And we also learned that if you didn't use these low-emitting products, you wouldn't be able to meet the clearance levels in the end um, to, uh, to clear the building uh, to be safe for occupancy. So um, the certifi certification does provide that avenue to allow manufacturers to 
to qualify their products and to have them validated by a third party. Um, the Green Guard program, which started in 2001, has about um, um, 250 manufacturers participating, um, covering range of products from paints to office furniture to flooring to ceiling systems to bedding, mattresses, baby cribs, kind of all sorts of products that go into the indoor environment. And those manufacturers go through a very rigorous testing where uh, all of their products are reviewed relative to how they're manufactured, how many different manufacturing locations they have, uh, how their supply chain is, is managed. And then um, representative products of their certification categories are actually tested. They go through a full environmental chamber test and screened for uh, ranges of, I think they're screened for over about 12,000 different chemicals to make sure that um, none of the more hazardous chemicals are there. If they're there, they're certainly well below the allowable levels based on basic risk assessment principles um, that are covered under the standards and uh, whether or not there are any odorants that manufacturers need to be aware of um, and, and that type of thing. So pretty uh, rigorous testing, and then they're held to an ongoing verification, so they have to annually uh, retest and show that their products still meet those standards. I think the marketplace overall sees the third-party verification process as a way to kind of cut through what we call the greenwash of just a lot of claims about products. Um, right now, it's kind of the wild, wild west. Anyone can claim a product is green for whatever reason they deem it to be green. Maybe it's just the color green. Um, so I think consumers, specifiers, users are uh, can be can be very confused about that issue. So I think third-party programs um, like 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 GreenGuard and some of the others that are out there can can help uh, clear that up and kind of demystify <laughs> the green issue. Doctor, I'd like to change issues for a minute and, and talk a little bit about remediation. You know, other than demolition, can you recommend any remedial procedures for reducing building emissions? Uh, such as bake-out, uh, adsorption, desorption, ventilation, uh, dilution. Uh, have any of those things uh, worked successfully, and do you recommend any of those procedures or techniques? Uh, yes. I've all, you know, all of those have been looked at through the years. I think when we, early in the indoor air quality um, times, when we were, you know, having to deal with these issues, we... The first concept we really tried was what we called building bake-out, where we may bring heat into the building and really heat up all the uh, materials and try to drive out the chemicals. And we found out through, um, through those processes that that was not a good approach because it was very hard to manage damaged materials, and also heating may cause chemicals to outgas that wouldn't ordinarily outgas. And so... Bake-out is no longer recommended, and traditionally, uh, I think what we have found works the best is what we call building flush-out, and that's allowing as much good, clean outdoor air, uh, allowing as much air to pass through that building, one-pass systems, you get it in and you, and, and you send it out to try to flush out those chemicals. Because probably in new construction, um, I would say a high percentage of the chemicals, maybe even 80 or 90 percent of those chemicals, may outgas very quickly within the first couple of weeks. And by applying air to flush flush them out of the building, you can keep, you can get them out, and uh, they'll they won't you get them out, so they can't cross contaminate other materials and that type of thing. So building flush out has kind of been the primary. Um, mitigation approach, I believe, that's been used. There have been uh, a number of efforts directed toward trying to put uh, filtration in to filter out these chemicals, you know, kind of in your primary filter banks, putting um, solid media, carbon beds, and that type of thing. And in the building projects that we've been involved with where that technique has been used, it has not been very effective. Uh, it appears to be hard to actually get the air controlled well enough where you can actually pass all of the air well through those filter beds and also those filter beds reach their 
capacity very quickly um, fill up so that they um, uh, get saturated uh, and then allow the, the chemicals to pass on through. So um, we don't see that being used very often in buildings. So I think the flush out is the primary uh, approach. The other is just to be careful about the products and make sure you bring in low emitting sources from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you actually covered one of the text questions here. Guest 7, if you if that didn't cover what you were asking, just send us another text in. I've got another quick one before we go to the roundup that was texted in. Um, is there a similar level of acceptance or emphasis on improving indoor air quality in Asia or Europe? And if not, why do you think this is the case? Uh, no, there definitely uh, are uh, programs that are addressing these particular issues in Europe and Asia. Uh, indoor air quality is very much a global issue, and a and, um, number of countries have their own uh, indoor air quality uh, requirements for buildings in terms of acceptable levels of chemicals. So uh, I'd say uh, some of those programs are even more stringent than, than what we have here in the United States. They require um, buildings be evaluated for a larger um, number of chemicals, breadth of different chemicals, and um, pretty strict requirements. So, and I think what we'll see overall with time is that here in the United States, we probably will start working more with, with, with the rest of the world and trying to, to harmonize more of, of these indoor air quality programs. Okay. We uh, are going to go to what we call a roundup. We're getting low on time. I don't know. Is it possible to keep you for an extra five minutes maybe? Do you have another appointment? Uh, another five minutes. Another five minutes would be fine. Okay, great. Well, let's go to the roundup. We'll bring Dr. Wild back in. We'll all ask one more question, and we'll take it from there. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Let's get Dr. Wild back on the line here. Hello, Dr. Wild. Dieter, do you have any final comments or questions? Uh, sure. Yeah, just um, uh, there was one text uh, uh, question over there on shipping. I did a couple of studies, oh, 35 years ago when I worked for the Bayer Chemical Corporation. Our laboratory was in Pittsburgh, and our plants were in Houston, Texas, and in California, and you name it. And we had exactly the same question. What is happening to our samples? And if you take care of the samples the way you should, you are going to be fine. We shipped some. We thought maybe that the low pressure in, uh, in airplanes uh, would have an effect on it. It didn't. We sent the same samples via UPS or whatever it was, FedEx, ground. And the other ones we send via an airplane, I guess today they all go via airplanes. But if you have a good tennis tube or even a charcoal tube and uh, you cap them and you keep them cool, uh, there's no problem. In fact, you don't even have to keep them all that cool. Uh, so that's not a big deal uh, anymore. So there, you, don't make a huge pro uh, you don't have a huge problem if you take the sample on Monday and you don't... Um, uh, um, test it on Tuesday. If you do it on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, you are fine. The other thing is, and this is one of those common sense things, I was just called in a uh, indoor air problem. There's a guy, in fact, I think Joe knows about him. Uh, he painted his house, I mean everything, like three rooms, during the coldest day in winter in Pittsburgh when everything was closed. And he said, my God, I have a problem in my house. Yeah, it's smell and I get a headache. Um, I guess it doesn't make a lot of a difference if, when you're painting in Florida or Southern California. But when you're in Pennsylvania, you paint in May and June, leave the door open. <laughs> and with a cheap $19 fan in the front and a cheap $19 fan in the back, which you can use later for other things, and just... Yeah, flush out the house. That works uh, uh, quite well. And 
Talking about the sensory irritation, uh, I know of two laboratories, one in Germany, one in uh, Denmark, and I'm sure there are more. They are still using sensory irritation uh, methods to identify um, irritating materials. And uh, in fact, they use, and I don't know what they use, but here at the University of Pittsburgh, Eve Allery, Dr. Allery, we use Swiss register mice uh, uh, for, for these tests. And yes, indeed, if uh, you can predict from their response, you can predict safe levels for humans. All right. Well, thank you, Dieter. We appreciate you joining us as always. Cliff, do you have one final one? I do. Uh, doctor, I suspect over the years you've gotten involved in more than one fire damage uh, situation. I was just wondering if you learned anything interesting from testing material that had either smoke damage or fire-related particulate on it? Um, we, we, have, we have evaluated some uh, fire damage materials or been in some facilities following fires. And, you know, what I recall most from that is that we are able to measure a lot of what I call um, aromatic type of chemicals um, that are residual from that activity. And, um, you know, the problem is a number of the aromatic chemicals are not necessarily good chemicals from a human exposure standpoint. And also, they have long-term odors associated with them. So typically, um, we find that if, you know, materials have absorbed those odors or they have been actually affected by the fire in some way that typically... You know, they really need to be, um, they, they can't be salvaged. It's very hard to, uh, to, to get those chemicals and odors out of them. Thank so you. they should be replaced. I have uh, one final question, and then we always like to give you an opportunity to uh, do two things. One, to add anything that we may have missed, and I know we missed a lot today, and hopefully we can someday get you back to discuss the rest of these questions we have. But before we do that, um, I had a question on uh, cleaners, and apparently you've done some uh, environmental chamber testing on cleaners. What have you learned about cleaners uh, that may not be common knowledge? Well, we've done a fair amount of uh, testing on cleaners, and I think one of the primary areas we test is to make sure that air cleaners are not uh, emitting harmful levels of ozone into the air. I think. We did learn through the years that uh, air cleaners in their um, desire to actually clean the air in some cases were generating more hazardous air by, um, by outgassing ozone. And ozone is a very strong pulmonary irritant uh, for people, and so we found that ozone was an issue. Now, in response to that, the, the state of California actually established a... Um, regulation for allowable ozone levels from air cleaners. So now to sell air cleaners in the state of California, you have to meet UL standard 867. That doesn't allow over uh, 50 parts per billion ozone. So we do a lot of testing of air cleaners to make sure that, um, uh, that, that they meet that particular standard. The other thing we've learned from air cleaners is that um, some of them can be effective in removing particles and uh, particulate type allergens that might be in the air, but um, you know, in order for them to be very effective, um, they have to have a significant air capacity so that they can really process large amounts of air to really clean the air. Sometimes the little unit ones just can't get enough air through them to make a big impact on the, the total amount of air that, that's in a room or the building. Is there anything that you'd like to add that we may have missed here? Well, we've talked about a lot of different things, um, and I, um, you know, um, nothing in particular. I do like to stress the point that uh, indoor air quality is still a very significant issue. Uh, we still see a lot of indoor air quality problems and um, are especially concerned um, from the residential side right now and, and, and even from commercial buildings. And I think one thing people need to realize is that as we continue down this track of creating green, high-performance buildings, whether they're our homes or our schools, part of that process is requiring us to focus on energy 
which means ultimately we're starting to reduce the amount of air that we're allowing in these buildings again. And when we do that, we can have a potential impact, a negative impact on the indoor air quality. So we've got to just be aware of that and make sure we balance these two issues so we don't save energy but poison the people. Well said, and we appreciate that. I'd also like to, before we go, if you would, uh, could you tell our listeners how they can contact you or Air Quality Sciences if they're interested in uh, learning more about your services? Okay, that's fine. They can contact us. Um, our website is www.aqs.com. Uh, we also have an info line that you can write to us, info at aqs.com, or feel free to contact me directly, and my email is mblack, very simple, at aqs.com. Well, we uh, want to really thank you from, from the bottom of our hearts for joining us here this week. It's been a fascinating show, and uh, I understand we're also uh, already set up to have one of your uh, one of your employees there, and I don't know if he's a uh, Dr. El- Elliot Horner's coming on to join us down the road here in, uh, later in April. We really appreciate uh, your participation with us here on IAQ Radio. Well, thank you very much, and, and Dr. Horner is an expert on microbiologicals and, and that particular area, so I'm sure you will enjoy speaking with him. Looking forward to that. All right, before we go. All right, uh, thank you very much. All right, You're have welcome. a great thank day. You. Before we go, I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's been fun today, Chuck. Always. Environmental Annie Koalecki for handling the controls. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us, as always, and uh, helping us out here on IAQ Radio. The Z-Man and I are going to take a spring break next week, so no show on 4209 or 4210. Wow, time flies when you're having fun, huh, Cliff? But we will be back on uh, 49, and uh, we will send out an invitation to all of our loyal listeners. But most importantly, we want to thank you and great group in today, great questions. We appreciate your participation, and we hope to see you here again in two weeks on IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.